It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Growing up in the Midwest, when the National Weather Service issued a tornado watch, my family headed to the basement to wait out the storm, listening carefully to the sounds of Mother Nature as the passing storm raged outside. But our guest today, Hank Shima, does the exact opposite when a severe storm warning alert crosses his path. As a storm chaser, he loads up his car with equipment and sets off to rendezvous with a storm and hopefully record from scary good video and audio. We're delighted to have Culligan Water as our sponsor for this season of the Adrenaline Zone. With Culligan's drinking water systems, you can get the ultra-filtered water you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle right on tap. Learn more at Culligan.com. We caught up with Hank at home in Houston the day before he was heading out to track another storm. So, Hank, thank you for joining us today on the Adrenaline Zone. And I'm glad we found a moment to chat because I think you mentioned you're going to be out chasing a storm tomorrow, right? Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, right now it looks like we're going to have some severe weather near the Arklatex area along I-20. So really messy scenario, but there could be some big tornadoes in a very dangerous area. So nobody would hope for that. But uh, uh, if it's there, it's there. And you're going to go look at it, right? Yeah, and I don't even want to go. The, it, the, the tornadoes are likely going to be rain-wrapped. They'll be moving 42 to 50 knots. Very unlikely success rate for storm chasers. But if it's your job, you kind of have to go to work just in case. <laughs> well, well, we, we interviewed a baseball player the other day. You know, your batting average doesn't have to be very high if you hit the ball at the right time, right? <laughs> so, well, look, uh, I don't know if storm chasing is the right word, but, you know, I think we like to usually start at the very beginning with our guests. Like, how did you get into this? You know, growing up, was it something you thought of or what, what uh, seized your interest in these beautiful things we call thunderstorms? My first camera was a 110 film camera, that little tiny film. And I got one and I can remember a storm coming and just trying to get lightning, you know, trying to get the secondary strokes, you know, what we call the return strokes and got one. And I guess it started there. I've just always been fascinated. It's all rooted in a fascination and love for all things Mother Nature, for the beauty of it, and then capturing it so that you can relive it and study it the best that you can. So are there a lot of people that do this? And do you run into each other? Because it's their <laughs> office, right? You have other people working in your office? And oh, yeah. It's so <laughs> funny because my friends and colleagues, you see them, you know, you'll see tomorrow. I don't know what state it's going to be in, but you, you know, we all kind of have a formula that we use and you run into them all over. And yeah, sometimes under these tornado warnings, there can be traffic jams of storm chasers. Oh, my gosh. So it's never, hey, dude, this is my storm, not yours. Get out of the way. <laughs> What? Well, if you're if you're a rookie, you might think that way. But <laughs> me, I just roll with it. It's part of it. Yeah, I noticed in some of your footage on YouTube, there's, you know, a camera focused on a tornado and it looks like it's pretty close. And then a car goes by on the road. That was probably <laughs> Scott or Reed or Daniel Shaw. Yeah, those are those are my buddies. 
You know, you mentioned you uh, when we were talking earlier that you approached a storm with the goal of documenting the beauty of nature more than anything else. So what kind of photography and video and audio training did you have in order to be able to capture these amazing photos that you have and, and videos? And how much junk do you lug around with you when you're trying to run these things down? As much as you can. And then how much is too much? Like somebody will say, why don't you ever stream live? Because that's another tool that you can use uh, to generate revenue so that you can afford to do it again. And I never stream live because it's one more bowling pin in the mix. It's just this, it's that last bowling pin that it's too many to juggle. And then the whole thing comes crashing down. So as many bowling pins as you can juggle, you do. Yeah, I think I understand juggling bowling pins and that. <laughs> that's but, a, I figure both of you guys. Yeah. yeah. So you had some time as a cameraman and that gave you, I guess, some insights into the video, but a, a lot of it has been self-taught because you've got some amazing shots. Same thing with, with music. It's all been self-taught with me. That's just how, how my plan works out. I'm always just, if you, if you have a fascination for something, it makes it really easy to learn. You know, uh, you know, a, a student that isn't as bored in math is going to have a tough time with it. Versus somebody, as you know, who, who likes solving problems, you know, that that's to me, that's everything right there. If something doesn't interest in me, it's going to be really hard for me to learn it. So, but cameras and documenting things and mother nature has always just been so easy for me. So no training. I just like, if I ever went, when I went to college for, for this stuff, it was like, I was way ahead of them. It was, it was like, I, I'm going back in time, sitting in class and learning about, it's like, yeah, let's move forward. So uh, it's all self-taught. So you're going out tomorrow to, to chase a storm. And so how do you figure out where is there a storm worth chasing? What makes one attractive? Are you listening to weather reports? Are there certain atmospheric conditions? Or are you just kind of go for all of them? How do you figure that out? Well, then on top of that, to add to, the, to Sandra's question is every one of these trips you take is an investment, right? Your time, your fuel, your you know attention. As, as Sandra asked, you know, how do you know this is the storm I want to go to? The answer to that is all of them. Because it's the one you don't go to that will surprise you. And so you just, most of the chasers that I know that do this for a living, you, you just kind of have to hit them all because there's only three or four events in the year. And you never know when exactly your, that event is going to be the right event. In other words, for us, it needs to be photogenic. Of course, you know, there's roughly 1,200 tornadoes in the U.S. every year. But how many of those are photogenic? How many are in the daytime? Tomorrow, there's a very unlikely chance of photogenic tornadoes. They're going to be wrapped in rain. They're going to be just nebulous. You know, like there's not, not the sharp, but most tornadoes are kind of nebulous. Like you, if you might be disappointed if you saw one, because we think of tornadoes as these high-based, highly visible tornadoes, funnels coming from the ground. But that's kind of what the internet says is a tornado, because that's what is shared more often than a more realistic, nebulous, rain-wrapped ill-defined tornado. So that's what's going to happen tomorrow, I think. So that just looks like a dense pile of rain swirling around and you can't even tell there's something like a tornado on the inside, huh? And that also makes them more dangerous because somebody might not, you can't see them coming, you know, especially in East Texas where it's all forest. You don't really know there's a tornado coming until it's right on top of you. And that's what I'm thinking may happen tomorrow. So I would imagine that uh, if I were a betting man, I'd say the best a season for doing this is the springtime when, you know, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the most photogenic tornadoes are in the springtime. Is there, is there a time when, uh, in the year when you, you're particularly excited about, Hey, I've got a really good shot at getting something today. 
Yeah, April, May, and June. For me, tornadoes tend to get more photogenic in June when they move into the northern plains, just due to the parameters, less maybe less humidity where the tornadoes are occurring. And so you get the high-based, the tornadoes that I was talking about. I and mean, one of those high-based tornadoes where the cloud base is really tall and the, the funnel is well-defined and there's no rain wrapping around it, one of those will make your season versus 20 rain-wrapped, ill-defined ones. And those, a lot of those tend to happen in June. I'm located in Houston, and so it's a long drive to Montana for me, and um, especially if I don't see that on my radar two, three days out in advance, I'll miss the event. Sometimes they pop up like, oh, you know, eight hours from now looks really good. If you're not already out there, miss it. So you're basically driving all over the U.S. to chase storms. Usually the Midwest is sort of the the rich, fertile storm generating area for tornadoes, though, isn't it? Or, right. or have you gone as far up as you know, like Maine or Washington State? And- Not for tornadoes. I've gone yeah. up to Maine for the black flies they have there. But- oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Those are fun. But yeah. Wear your cap. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, I remember diving into the basement. I grew up in the Midwest. We have a start. If there was a storm coming with a tornado on it, we all headed for the basement and you watch the green sky. But Texas has the most beautiful skies for watching thunderstorms approach. And Sanders, in my business, uh, prior business, uh, there's a process, right? You know, you, you brief, you prepare, you go out to your airplane or your, or your space shuttle and you fly and then you come back. Can you walk us through your process from the moment? Okay, I'm going tomorrow. And why? through actually the moment when you're there uh, getting the pictures. I love how you just said, yeah, you know, you go, you go out in space, you know, you get in the ship, you know. You go to the- <laughs> it's a thing. Hey, it's a routine. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, routine. a process. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, first, it starts with uh, you start to see pattern recognition. You start to see the upper level lows that come across, you know, that the Rocky Mountains or then they form, you know, on the on the leeward side of the Rockies. And that that is this system that happens here so often that assembles all the ingredients for tornadoes. It's just this this, you know, one process of these upper level lows coming over the Rocky Mountains. And the physics just bring all the elements that you need for a tornado together. And that happens here so often. So you see that happening. And it's also good because once it's moved on, you're like, okay, I've got a few days. And the numerical models that we all use, you know, if you hear a weatherman, he's, he's just going to the numerical models. And so that's all access. We all have access to these numerical models and they're constantly updated. And they're basically the best that we understand the laws of physics as humans. So they're supposed to be improving, improving, and they're just getting to me for what I do incredibly accurate. So when I hear somebody say, yeah, the weathermen are always wrong. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> You know, it's it's because all my friends can look at numerical models and say, I need to be in North Dakota in 48 hours or eight days out. There's a really good chance, you know, you know, that's a little far, but you can say with some confidence that low pressure system is going to be over Montana in eight days. So I need to be in North Dakota in eight days. So I guess with all that, the numerical models, it's just amazing to me how accurate they are. And then we have different numerical models for the different timestamp, kind of like the isotope dating. You know, it's like, how far in time do you want to go back? And then two days out, we have a, a model called the high res rapid uh, refresh. 
And I'm just astonished last year at how it performed. I, I remember in the year prior in 2021, it, I thought, man, it's, this thing isn't performing as well. But last year, I was just astonished at how well these numerical models say. I mean, literally, it'll tell you a supercell thunderstorm is going to happen here in two days. And, and you take that as just guidance. It's not you're not saying that exact cell is going to happen. But with that kind of guidance, you can really be accurate and, and, and save less time and gas driving around. So that's how it starts is you're just looking at models and trying to get as much data and understand a lot of parameters as much as possible. And then let's say the day of the chase, let's say that there's a, a chance of, like tomorrow of significant tornadoes uh, where a tornado is EF2 or, or greater. On those days, you kind of feel anxiety, adrenaline. You're feeling that on the morning you wake up because you, you know, wow, Godzilla is coming. You know, even, though, even though he's nine hours away. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. It's like managing that anxiety and that adrenaline so that you can be rested. You might get to the target area four hours early. It'd be really nice to chip off of the sleep deficit, you know, to get a 30-minute cat nap. If you've got all that adrenaline still, you know, that kind of interferes with, with that process. And so you're there on the target area, then the, the things that you imagine start to happen, you start to see the clouds boil, they start to bubble up on radar, and, and all the things that you predicted are just are starting to happen. That, that alone right there is amazing. Even if you capture a tornado and it's a non-photogenic tornado, just the process of clairvoyance if you will, is fascinating. And wow, what I predicted is happening before me. So the fact that we just live in an age where you can do that, it doesn't get old. It blows my mind away every time it happens. So uh, then, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I want to hear the rest. <laughs> <laughs> so then the tornado happens and then you chase. Okay, what's up? Yeah. Well, I was just, you know, as you were talking about the, how these patterns develop, you know, it's like we've got this incubator uh, for tornadoes used to the Rockies. And it made me wonder, is there anywhere else in the world with those same sort of terrain and meteorological characteristics where there's just frequent tornadoes? And uh, there's other hotspots. None of them can compare to the U.S. Argentina could be a kind of a mirrored uh, version of the U.S. Uh, it's really interesting because for us, our source, our source of moisture, which is one of the things we need for tornadoes, is the Gulf of Mexico. In Argentina, the source of moisture is the Amazon basin. So I, I think that's pretty amazing, though. Even though it's land, it's just so moist. So the air comes up, or you know, south from uh, the Amazon basin into Argentina, and then they also have the north-south running mountain range. And so the jet stream comes over to that, they get their Lilo. So it's an inverted version of us, but it's still not nearly as efficient as producing tornadoes. So you wake up from your catnap and what? You realize you catnapped too long. <laughs> <laughs> oops. Yeah. Oops. Oops. Oh man, I need to be in Paris, Texas, you know? And so uh, you, you, you start rolling and it's constant relocating. And, and even that can be a process of one of my things is if I need to relocate one mile, I'll do it. Like it's, it's just chipping away and closer. And sometimes it's not a straight line. You know, it's just, it's okay. I got new data. Where do I need to be? And you move to there. Okay. Got new data. Where do I, okay. I need to be back where I was. And I do that constantly until the storm happens and you know exactly where you need to be, where it's obvious 
So it's too much so, of a pun to say you're funneling down. I'm sorry, Sandra, go ahead. <laughs> you you That's a good pun. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's my, I feel like I've used that before where the, the things that I'm good at and the things that I'm not good at in life have funneled me to this trade. <laughs> Water is the ultimate health drink. With Culligan's filtration systems, you'll get the superior quality and pure tasting, ultra refreshing hydration you can count on to power your performance. Culligan's smart reverse osmosis systems take it to the next level, helping you set hydration goals, track how much you're drinking, and even see what contaminants are reduced in your water. That means you're always getting the exceptional water you need to feel truly good inside and out, ready to face the day, whatever challenges it brings. Learn more at Culligan.com. I mean, storms are quite literally a force of nature. And you talk about you're moving from place to place to place. So what have you learned over the years about safe distances and the factors you have to watch out to stay safe while trying to get the best video. And by the way, we were talking yesterday and for anybody who wants to check out some of the video, uh, go to the YouTube channel, Pico's Hank, and he has some stunning storm images out there. And sometimes it looks like you're getting a little close. So what are your safety factors in that decision? That's a great question um, that we all wrestle with. I come home and I tell my wife, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I, I pushed it too far. I'm not going to do that. And then I go out and do it. And then I have to analyze, why did I do that again? And you just get so caught up in it. And, and so you have to go back and sort all that out. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly trying to psychoanalyze my own behavior. I, I, you know, my bias. Why did I chase that storm? Was it really that dangerous? It looks really dangerous on camera. Maybe at the time it wasn't that dangerous. But of course, we generally what we do is very dangerous. Uh, dangerous. But as you guys probably understand, it's relative. I would take a close tornado that I'm in control of versus I-35 commute <laughs> any day with the people driving, you know, on their phone that are, oh. <laughs> I mean, that is so dangerous. And, and, and we can joke about that, but more storm chases, that's, that's the big reality of, of the danger is the commutes back and forth back and forth. You know, every time I get back, you know, it's like, yeah, I got a couple of tornadoes, but man, driving through the DFW Metroplex wore me out, you know, with all the, the, the crazy driving. So I guess what you're saying is, you know, we talk about uh, hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. You have hours of sheer terror on the highway punctuated by moments of excitement with a tornado going by, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I I heard you mumble on your, I think, best of 2016 tornadoes, like, oh, I think I got a little bit too close this time. Do you just that when you can start feeling the wind a little bit more? Yeah. So uh, one time, um, it can be an error in data. Like one time I use a tablet map and in the craziness of storm chasing, my tablet got skewed clockwise 30 or 40 degrees without me knowing. Uh, and this was in Northwest Texas where the roads aren't grids. They meander through canyons. Cause if I was in Kansas and I saw the grid, I'd go, Oh, whoops. And I didn't know that. And so I thought I was going North and I was actually going to intercept a large mile and a half wide rain wraps tornado. I was thought I was going North. I was going Northwest and just, and then I was also in a Canyon. And so I was like, this doesn't feel right. And I, there was a driveway that went up to the Canyon. I drive up the Canyon to get a look, to get my bearings. And here it is just coming right at you. <laughs> Oops. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So 
when you're out there as much as we are, which is day after day after day, that the chances of a dumb error like that increase. And then also another big factor is I wasn't ex- really expecting a tornado because some sometimes what gets me in trouble is I didn't have faith in in Mother Nature. Like, ah, she's not going to do it today. And then when she does, you're like, what? You know, hold on. So that'll that'll get me in trouble too. So I guess that part of the checklist is because um, checklists can keep you safe. Uh, is does my reverse gear work in my truck uh, <laughs> today <laughs> to get the heck out of there? That brings me to something I'd like you guys to chime in about. And that's the role of adrenaline. And so, yeah, you've got your your certain doses of adrenaline. And then, okay, you get up, you come over the ridge, and boom, here's the tornado coming. You get an extra surge of adrenaline. You don't want to panic, obviously. So you've got to back up down a potholed little driveway with muddy ravines on the side. One wrong move, and you're stuck. Time to keep cool, focus backwards slowly, get on the paved road, punch it. Do you see where I'm getting that with that? What do you guys, in a similar situation, do you have a model, a checklist for how to handle? Well, I think, you know, in the positions that we had, we we were working in kind of like you, you know, you do this every day, right? And so the adrenaline becomes, I don't say less and less a factor, but it's but your norm is working on the on the edge and you're well trained for it. And you're just, you're very focused on the mission and getting the thing done that you're trying to get done. And so adrenaline spikes, whether they happen or not, become not really a factor in how you're performing. I guess that's the way I would put it. Yeah, I think Sandra's right. And, and uh, you know, training and procedures and then, you know, a rehearsal in your mind for things that can go wrong. And then as you, I think you nailed it, uh, Hank, and, and in the moment, you just sort of tell yourself, okay, I got a few things I need to do here. And if I panic, it's going to get in the way. So I can't, I just can't panic. I'm just going to, you know, I've got this hydraulic failure at low altitude coming in to land on a dark night at a ship. And I'm just not going to let this affect me. I've just, I've got to do just a couple of procedures here and then I'm going to make it happen. You're probably going through the exact same thing when that moment occurs. It's like, holy crap, I got a few things I got to do. I got to back down this ravine and you just do it. And, you know, I just, again, listening to your videos, your narration is quite calm. So it's it's clear that you're used to being in that environment with, you know, that that sort of adrenaline rush, but it's not, it doesn't come out in your voice as you're so close to these storms as you're videoing them. You're just calmly narrating. Yeah, I also think, uh, Hank, there are people who don't do that and they either clutch up and don't do anything or they act impulsively. And make a fatal mistake instead of, of sort of reverting back to the good training and the good preparation that they did, uh, which is fundamental, and then just control their emotions. I'm sure you've experienced that yourself. Yeah, exactly. The adrenaline, the role of adrenaline, right, is it helps you focus, right? But anxiety is in there too. And I don't, I, I get the confused, the two confused sometimes, but in my association, my job the adrenaline, I feel like it's not a good thing. Like I don't want it. Like I may, or maybe I I tell myself that maybe the adrenaline is a good thing. It's helping me focus and it's the anxiety that I don't want. But for me, people, there's been people talk about the adrenaline junkie and I've said, it's not, I'm not that guy, but I, now I'm like, maybe I just don't understand adrenaline. 
But for me, I've always thought it that gets in the way of what I'm trying to do. And you're right, this it gets easier and easier each time. Obviously, the first time this happened, I wasn't as calm and collected. So I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on the role of adrenaline versus anxiety. Is it a good thing for us versus somebody who is new to danger? Well, I'll tell you, the first time I landed in an airplane on an aircraft carrier at night, I was, I wouldn't say a chocolate mess, but I was not, I'd never done it before. So I was like, holy crap, this is, this is a lot harder than I thought it was. And then over time, you start to realize that the throttles have the same action in the daytime as they do it at night. So you don't want to over, overdo those. And, but, but I can promise you that that doesn't make you want to go back out at night as a pilot. But I do think there are certain situations, uh, like daytime carrier landings, whatever, where you want to go test yourself. And, you know, you are on adrenaline and you are working as hard as you can. And you're really, really focusing your attention as, as hard as you can and right brain activity, whatever. And you land and you go, I could have done that a little better. I want to go out and do it again. And I felt alive. I felt more alive than just sitting around. Uh, so I think there, I wouldn't call it junky, but maybe there's a little bit of, a, of an addictive nature of it. I don't know, Sandra, what do you think? Well, I would put it this way. You know, the adrenaline, it's a chemical reaction to a new situation or a stressful situation that your body undergoes, right? And and so being able, number one, to separate the emotion out, but to understand that the addiction part is probably more related to being challenged and constantly challenging yourself. And the adrenaline is just a, a chemical reaction in your body that's happening when you put yourself into challenging situations, right? So you see, she's a scientist and I'm I'm just a, you know, a pilot. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, it's fun to challenge yourself and push the limits of what you can do. You know, it's it's like a voyage of discovery to see what's possible. But, you know, and separating out, but we're 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 sort of these interesting people as human beings in that we you know, we're explorers and we want to push the limits, but yet we're also afraid of the unknown, right? And so that ability to separate that fear out and still do the challenge is, I think, at the core, Hank, of what you're talking about and, and Sandy, too. But the adrenaline is a byproduct, right? I think it's really cool that you are introspective about whether it's the adrenaline that brings you back. But, but you, you told us at the very beginning that the beauty of these things is what drew you out to continue to do this. Uh, but you're also a citizen scientist, right? You gather documentation and data for scientists you collaborate with, even though you're technically not an academic PhD yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. You know, who do you collaborate with? How do you select who you collaborate with? And what kind of instrumentation or what kind of data are you giving these people? My objective is to get the most, to capture videos for myself that I can rewatch and relive the moment. So if I'm screaming and cursing and shaking the camera, that interferes with, even though that can be a great delivery for entertainment, I'm not ragging on that style at all. But my style is I want to go back and observe the tornado. And it's easier to observe with stable footage and with me keeping, not flapping my gums. So at first I wasn't that guy. I was, oh my God, you know, it could, you know, we'll have to take all the audio out because I ruined the audio with my descriptive words. But uh, so. My videos tend to be very stable, stable as possible, and it's about the tornado. It's about the lightning. It's about the other elements of Mother Nature. And so this, the scientists have picked me. Like, they've said, this can help my work. So one of the guys that I really enjoy, I enjoy working with all of them, um, is uh, Dr. Lee Orff at the University of Wisconsin, who's modeling 
these tornadic storms with supercomputers at 10 meter resolution. So if, if you if I talk about the numerical models that that I watch, we're talking the sharpest ones are eight kilometer resolution, wow. maybe. So so that's not going to really resolve a tornado unless it's eight kilometers wide, which we haven't really had yet. The biggest one's been like four point just over four kilometers wide. So at 10 meter resolution, he can see inside everything that's happening inside this simulation, but it's a simulation. So is it a real representation of nature? I'm looking at simulations and I'm saying, that's what they look like. Like I've seen all of these features, these vertical features here, these, these byproduct clouds over here. And so I, what I'm doing is validating his simulation with side-by-side models of this is what his simulation is showing. This is what I've seen in nature. And sometimes you can't even tell which one's the simulation and which one's the actual footage. So that's a really fun thing is anytime he sends me a new angle, I'm like, I've got that. And then I send him the actual shot and side by side, you can compare them. So, so to be clear, it's really the video that he's using for uh, his science work and not necessarily like pressure instruments or something that you've got out there. Exactly. Okay. Wow. It just shows him that, yeah, I'm on the right track, you know, versus if, if there was something, if the tornado was going the wrong way, as we say, anti-cyclonic in this, you know, he might say, well, maybe there's something wrong with the model. Because remember, there were, we're constantly updating these models and trying to make them more like Mother Nature. So that's one collaboration. Another one I do is with Dr. Anton Simon. We have a team where he uses photogrammetry, which is basically clocking or tracking particle motions with high resolution film. And so we're a three vehicle team. And because we're all good at getting video and stable video, and then he can use through triangulating the particle motion, he recreates the tornado to, to try to gather some information about the tornado. So if there's like a house spinning around, you know, you're tracking the house. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, he can, you know, if there's, you know, and, and actually the smaller things, I think, are better indicators of, of wind speeds because, you know, of the least drag and weight mass. And so uh, that could shed some light on tornadoes. Ultimately, what everybody's trying to do is increase the lead time when of forecasting. So right now, let's say it's 13 minutes. In other words, hey, warning, you've got 13 minutes or you're going to die. We're trying to increase that lead time. And then also, we warn a lot of storms that are rotating. The, the National Weather Service kind of warns most of them. And of those warnings, I think 20% actually produce a tornado. So there's, an, there's a very high false alarm rate, which is what they've opted to do better to warn than not warn. And so we would like to understand, we really don't understand why this supercell produced a, you know, a tornado that was on the ground for two hours and, you know, EF5 uh, rating. And then this one didn't even produce a tornado. If we can figure that out, then we can reduce the false alarm rate. And then maybe people will heed the warnings better and then ultimately lives are saved. So when you get the scientists out in the field with you, do they um, sort of kink your style? You have to train them to, to do stupid stuff or they have some good protocols with them? <laughs> well, Dr. Anton's a veteran chaser. He's so he's teaching us stuff. He's been doing it. He was doing it, you know, 15 years before we were. And then, of course, we all the other captain of uh, one of the, the car vehicles is Skip Talbot. And he's we all bring different things to the table. We all have very different styles of chasing. That's the thing is we all chase very different. So we have a, a, uh, a conch shell that we pass around 
And so whoever's that holds the conch for the day is the admiral. And I mean, I'm just thinking all I've got to do is, is ruin the lives of two guys. And then I'm thinking, you know, here's Admiral Winifield. <laughs> Everybody's dependent on, on your decisions and the pressure of that. Just, just being in charge of, of four other people on two vehicles is such a tremendous pressure that I don't know if I want. I can't imagine the pressure that you guys have had. Well, I guess tornado tourism then is out of the question for you, right? That's out of the question for me. Well, with tornado tourism, you don't have to deliver them close to the. <laughs> In fact, they'd probably yeah. rather you didn't. It's like, okay, I'm not so sure I really, really wanted to do this. Okay. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, if you get people in the field who don't know what they're doing, they can actually create risk and cause more problems. So Exactly. You live to embrace risk in the air, on the slopes, and anywhere your determination takes you. But when it comes to the drinking water that fuels your adventures, you're not looking to take chances. With cutting-edge filtration that can target contaminants as small as a single atom, Culligan's reverse osmosis filtration systems deliver the next-level hydration you need to keep working at peak performance, whatever the day brings. Get started by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. You know, you don't just do tornadoes. You do a lot of other things as well. I mean, we won't even get into your amazing musical career, for example. But Good. That's uh, you, boring. You, <laughs> but you actually discovered a new phenomenon that was uh, with the green ghost, I guess a transient upper atmospheric electrical discharge or something like that, which, which to me sounded a little spooky at first, but it actually makes a whole lot of sense. And you've got photographic evidence of it. So tell us a little bit about how you got into that. Yeah, thank you. So in 1989... Some guy pointing in Minnesota, pointing a camera, a high sensitive camera at the sky, accidentally caught something called what they called a red sprite. Of course, it was black and white on the camera. We didn't know it was red. Then I think the same year, the from space, I guess it would have been the space shuttle or we didn't have the, the space station in 89, did we? That no, was a shuttle. Yeah. So I guess it was the space shuttle got shots of a sprite from space. And so it's like, oh my gosh, we've got this new thing that we just discovered. Since then, there's so basically we call them TLEs, transient luminous events. And they're these large scale discharges that happen above thunderstorms. So what is the ISS is about? What is that? 300 kilometers up? Yeah, it goes somewhere between there and 415. It's bouncing. Right. So in the auroras, you would think of around 100 to 300 or 400. I guess you're, it, kilometers. So the sprites are down about 80, 90 kilometers. So, you know, very high above the thunderstorm, you're still, you know, in the stratosphere. And so you've got all these different colors. They're beautiful. They're reds and they're blue. And then a disclaimer, they're a lot dimmer than what you see in the photos. So you can see them with the naked eye, but they're not nearly, it's like the auroras, you know, they're not nearly as vibrant as what my camera, how my camera presents them. And uh, so I just wanted to capture those. They're just so beautiful. And after years and years of chasing them, one day I was like, hey, there's a little green afterglow after two of my red sprites. Has anybody ever seen this before? And everybody's like, no, no, that's not a thing. That's, that's a camera sensor artifact. And I was just going, oh boy, because I knew it wasn't. You could just tell by its behavior. It had structure, the way it dissipated. And it turns out that I discovered me and a colleague that I work, a friend, who have been, a, we're kind of a team together. We discovered them. I captured the first two and then he solidified the skepticism or killed the skepticism by getting 
several after that. Uh, he knows more about the physics of these things. And so he came up with a hypothesis that it was, it was the oxygen being excited, which basically the oxygen in the atmosphere emits green at that pressure. And so we called them ghosts. So I guess you have to have special positioning and conditions for those things. I mean, because if you're uh, around a system that has an awful lot of high clouds and you just can't see, I mean, you have to be able to see the top of the thunderstorm. And that means you have to be at a distance. Uh, and then you're zooming in on the top of the thunderstorm. And I guess you're just taking pictures as fast as you can because it's transient, right? Uh, so, okay. Thank goodness for the digital camera, right? Oh, yes. yeah. Thank goodness. The Fuji Chrome was getting expensive. <laughs> so are there other gaps in the literature that, you know, things that are theorized that you're actually trying to chase? Or you know, that was sort of a voyage. I mean, that was the discovery that was serendipitous. So with the, the TLEs, I'm collab- I've done some outreach with NASA and there's some other scientists that are really interested because we call the ionosphere, but they also call it the ignorosphere, which is kind of lame, a joke, but because we know so little about it, it it's, it's, it's too... Uh, it's too high for balloons and it's too low for this or whatever. And so any information we can get about this part of the atmosphere is good. So perhaps the green ghosts are shedding light. I think people were surprised that the oxygen was exciting at that level. Some of the scientists were like, wow, I wasn't thinking oxygen would excite at that, at that level. So that's a, some side projects, uh, collaborations that I've done. And then the other ones, another one that I'm doing tethers right into your last question is right now I'm, I'm, kind of um, assisting Dr. Walt Lyons, who's, who's trying to gather data about ball light. And so ball lightning is this highly, it's, it's, it's reported as a luminous orb that floats through your house and, you know, a self-contained lightning ball, and it passes through walls and windows. And there's been reports that go back hundreds of years, but it's all anecdotal. And so I'm the skeptic who's saying, look, We've got these storms surrounded by cameras. I mean, any storm, if I get a picture of something, I'm thinking, oh, I got a great shot. And then 12 other people post a better shot of the exact same phenomenon. That's, that's my word. Why is nobody getting high resolution pictures of ball lightning? All the ball lightning video that we're examining are low resolution. It's the one pixel, you know, that's moving odd. Yeah, yeah. It's that. So I'm very skeptical that it doesn't exist. But I also have all the field experience where the scientists are, have all the keyboard and math experience. So they send me the video and say, what do you think? And I'm like, and then we'll, we'll, we'll narrow it down like, that's cottonwood. That's, a, that's cottonwood seed flying by. It's just low resolution. <laughs> that's what that is. And then so I oh send God. him a bunch of high resolution footage of cottonwood flying by that I've got. So that's another little collaboration that I'm working on. So as I mentioned earlier, you're also a songwriter and a musician, and, and you've used your music in the videos you produce. So, you know, it's a great example of merging art and science, which is, you know, how the iPhone was made. Has a storm ever actually motivated a song for you, or is it the other way around? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's the driving. Like all my songs, they all have a feel of driving. I love the freedom of driving on open roads. And so you'll feel that in all my songs. So I, I have to ask, since we're talking about weather, did you ever work with the Weather Channel? Because they're always out and about chasing weather as well. I license to them regularly. They, they license my footage. Similar question. Uh, you know, storm chasing's been in a host of Hollywood films. Uh, have you ever been involved with those efforts? You know, because they got to have video. And how well do they how well do they tell the story? Uh, they don't tell the story well at all. Yeah. So hopefully that's going to change. I'm working with a, a guy who's who just finished a movie 
unfortunately, it starred Alec Baldwin and he had his accident. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, they finished the movie before he did that accident happened with him, but they're going to release it in March. It's called Supercell and it's about storm chasers. And instead of CGI, they're using all my actual tornado footage for the, the tornadoes. That's way cool. So who's playing you? Nobody's playing me. Yeah. I just, yeah, I'm just a couple, a couple characters in the end credit. <laughs> That's awesome. That, I mean, that is really awesome. Wow. We, um, we probably could talk to you for hours, but this time flew by on this one. I'll tell you. I know, but we are running out of time. So, um, Hank, we really want to thank you for being a guest on the adrenaline zone and taking a moment out of your schedule since I know you're out tomorrow, to share the fascinating up-close personal encounters with nature that you routinely have. And again, if anyone wants to check out some of Hank's amazing video, check out his YouTube channel, Pico's Hank. It's really worth a look. And I suppose, uh, sort of a final question, you know, after you have a day like you hopefully will have tomorrow, do you immediately post what you have or do you... So theoretically, we could check in almost any day and see what you've been doing. I'm terrible at that. Like my ultimate result is packaging it well. And so there, that's a big problem is there's the, there's the breaking news element. And there's so many guys that are so much better at the breaking news element. Like they just, the second they record it, they pumped it out of their car to the news stations. So by the time I get there a day later, they're like, we've got it. So my job is to package it up and make something informative that kind of lives past the breaking news 24, 48 hours that lives forever. What did I learn from this storm? What can we learn from it? Here's what happened. Or here's just the goofy thing that happened that day. Well, you know, we're grateful to our podcast producer, Riley Byrne from Podigy for um, turning us on to finding you, actually. Uh, be safe out there, Hank. We'll follow you. I can't say what an honor express what an honor it is to be able to talk to you guys that you took the time out to talk to me and and uh, i look forward to uh, if there's anything i can assist you guys with let me know all right thanks that was hank shima full-time storm chaser sharing his adventures with us i'm sandra magnus and i'm sandy winnefeld thanks again to culligan water for sponsoring this episode get exceptional water for exceptional performance learn more at culligan.com And check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Hank on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.